Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who knew no sin became sin. He became the receptacle of sin. And that perfect, precious fellowship that he had known from all of eternity past was for the first time broken. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We move today into chapter 15 of our study of the Book of Romans. A few weeks ago, we noted that chapters 12 through 16 comprise the practical section of this great letter. They deal specifically with Christian behavior. And today, in a message entitled Christian Unity, Dr. Brogy begins to look at three marks for a healthy, unified New Testament church. Would you take the Word of God this morning, please, and turn to Romans chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me once again welcome the visitors who have come. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us, and you may be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this letter for nearly three years now. And today we find ourselves near the end of this great letter in the 15th chapter, and I think it's very appropriate that in the providence of God, we come to this text of Scripture at the beginning of a new year because we have here three marks for a healthy, unified New Testament church. And so this would be a good time for us to take a spiritual checkup. Now, by God's grace, He has allowed us to be a healthy New Testament church. But that does not mean we cannot excel still more, nor does it mean that we could not backslide as a congregation and fall into disunity. And of course, in the New Testament, the church is not simply an organization, though it is indeed organized, it is an organism. It's made up of people, living stones. And so we need to be reminded as to the direction that God would have each of us go in the direction he'd have us to go corporately. Now, I believe as your pastor that in the fullest sense of the word, a healthy church is able to impact not just its community, but its state, its nation, and potentially the world. And we should live like we were the only Christians on the face of the earth. If we were the only Christians left on planet earth, we should live like the Great Commission is all ours and we are to take it to the ends of the earth. That's the way the early church thought. We don't think enough. We think someone over there is going to do it. Someone over there is going to pull off the Great Commission. Now, we won't do it alone. The scripture is clear. But we need to be involved in this commission to take God's word to an unbelieving world. And more and more and more, because today over 70% of America will not be in church anywhere, probably higher because of this particular Sunday. Over 70% of America no longer goes to church on a given Sunday. In fact, most people more and more go to church just three times in their life, to be hatched, to be matched, and then to be dispatched. So we need to be a healthy church. We need to be an attractive church, a church that would have the ear of an unbelieving world. And our text of Scripture helps us to do that. So follow along, Romans chapter 15. I want to begin by reading the first six verses. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the marks of a healthy, unified New Testament church. You might want to jot these down for further reflection and prayer this week. And if you're new, there is a note-taking outline there in your bulletin to help you. And I want you to see the very first characteristic of a unified church is that a unified church is a strengthening church. A unified church is a strengthening church. When a person comes to a church, he is not to be torn down. He is to be built up. Notice verse 1, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now remember the context of these verses. If you remember from the 14th chapter, the makings of a possible split were there in this church at Rome. They were discussing and they had some disputes over diets and days. Some Christians thought that they were free to eat anything they wanted. Others, as 14.2 indicates, thought they could only eat vegetables. And there were some fights over it in the early church. Other Christians recognized that the five prescribed feast days of the Old Testament were prophetic in nature and were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Others thought that these days still had special recognition that we were to give. And so there were some issues that they argued over. And they were really non-essential issues. And by non-essential, what we're saying is that these are not issues that make or do not make you a Christian. These are not issues upon which your uh, salvation depends. These are not issues of orthodoxy. And we face similar issues in our day. Some think that a Christian should never go to a restaurant on Sunday. Others have total freedom to do that. Some think that only one particular translation of the Bible should be used. Others say, no, there's other good translations. Some might have one particular conviction as to whether or not they can see movies. Others say, you can go to any movie. Some might have convictions as to how they should educate their children. Others have chosen other options. There are all kinds of peripheral issues over which we might disagree. As a matter of fact, sometimes we disagree whether something's even a peripheral issue. But please understand, here in Romans 14 and 15, the issue did not simply lie in the fact that there were some disputes. The biggest issue that he is focusing on is how they handled those disputes. Some of the attitudes and actions that they displayed towards one another that hurt the unity of the early church. Some of the so-called stronger Christians, they were right in the realization that they had certain freedoms concerning diet and days, and their brethren were wrong over the freedom they did not possess, but they were wrong in the way they handled and exercised those freedoms. On the other side, you had weaker Christians who looked at some of their brethren who exercised certain freedoms and they condemned them and they snubbed them and, and they were also a divisive agent in the early church. And in, church, and in short, they were not exercising Christian love. And, and so people, instead of leaving the church built up and encouraged, they left angry and divided. And so as you look back on chapter 14, look into verse 19 there in your Bible. He reminds all of them and by application all of us that they were to pursue the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another. 
That was a general admonition written to everyone in the church. But if you remember to those stronger believers, and they're stronger again in that they were theologically correct in their convictions, but they were carnal in the exercise of those convictions, he says here in the opening chapter, of opening verse of chapter 14, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purposes of passing judgment on his opinions. But now in the opening verse of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells these strong Christians that they ought only not to accept them, but they ought to support them and strengthen them. Look at 15 in verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We've seen this word ought one other time in the book of Romans. If you remember in the introduction to Romans, in Romans chapter 1, we had the three great I am statements of evangelism. Paul said, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel. And he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we saw that this word, I am under obligation, ophelettes, was actually a financial term in the first century that describes someone who is in debt to another individual. Well, Paul obviously did not owe the church at Rome any money, but he had been given something by Jesus Christ, as you have. He had been given the gospel, and as a good steward, he was in debt to humanity to share that good news so that his debt might be released. It's a financial term. It's a term of debt, and it's the same word that is used here. In fact, in Old English, the word ought when used in the past tense is the word owe, O-W-E. So if you owed someone something, they, they ought you something. Look again at verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses. What I'm trying to say is that this is not some suggestion. This is a command from God Almighty. Just like you and I are under obligation to share the gospel, even so we are under obligation, especially those who are mature in faith that he's describing in the opening verse, to help those who are weak, to strengthen those, and not just to please ourselves. Now, major question, what does it mean when he says here, to bear the weaknesses of those without strength? Does it mean, well, you just put up with them? You just uh, bear with them. You just tolerate them. No, he says we're to support them. We are to get underneath and we are to strengthen them. You've heard the old saying to dwell above with those we love. That will be glory. But to dwell below with those we know, well, that's quite another story. Well, that's the attitude some of them had. Well, we're just going to grin and, and bear it. And we don't like some of these brethren that are weaker and and they looked down on them, and they exercised their freedom before them to basically say, you're immature and you ought to grow up. And their attitude was all wrong, and, and God wants us to bear, to come alongside. The, the Greek word here, to bear, literally means to carry with endurance, not just once, but to persevere through it. Years ago, our family went to Grandfather Mountain, and we visited the swinging bridge that many of you have been to that was built in 1950, and it's a very famous bridge that connects two mountain peaks. And it's called the Swinging Bridge because when the wind blows up there in Boone, it, the, the, the bridge will literally swing. And it was a, a rather cold day. Fortunately, we had our jackets and hats, and it was so breezy, your hats wanted to blow right off your head. Now, I had some older sons who had no fear at all, and 
They just wanted to run right across that bridge, even though it was swinging, no fear at all. But we had some younger children, and they wanted that same freedom. They wanted to get to the other side, but they just kind of inched their way along very, 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 very slowly. And it's like that with these gray areas that we've been discussing here in the 14th chapter. We know that there are some things that are always right and proper to do that are not up for debate amongst born-again Christians. It's always right to give thanks in all things. It's always right for our speech to be seasoned with grace. It's always right to do everything in an orderly and in a decent way in the church service. Christian people don't come to me and ask me as their pastor, should they pray, should they give, should they read the Bible, should they share the gospel? They know those things are right. We also have reminded ourselves that there are some things that are always wrong to do. It's always wrong to forsake our assembling with God's people on Sunday, the Lord's Day. It's always wrong to speak evil of one another. It's always wrong to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always wrong to steal, to covet, to commit adultery, to lie. There's no and ifs and buts about it. There are some things that are clearly right and clearly wrong. But then there's that area in the middle, what we're calling gray areas, areas concerning the kind of entertainment you can enjoy, the kind of music you could listen to, the kind of movies you might watch, and on and on and on the list goes. And as we discussed last time, some Christians would say, well, you know, there's not a verse in the Bible that says you shall not smoke a cigar, and since God doesn't address it, do whatever you want. You're free in Jesus. And we've been learning that while God does not give us a list of every specific issue we may face in life, He does give us some clear principles that will govern the choices that we have to make in this life. Some of you grew up in a home where you just couldn't breathe on Sunday. And you couldn't do a thing. Now, in my home, when my children were being raised, we had no problem with going out on the front lawn and tossing the football and having fun and laughing together on Sunday afternoon. But for some who grew up in a different kind of home, you want that freedom, but it's difficult for you to get across that bridge. And it would be cruel for someone to take someone by the hand and to run them across that bridge. Incredibly insensitive. So with perseverance, with sensitivity, with encouragement, The stronger brothers are to help the weaker brothers to get across that bridge. Our attitude is not to be, ha, look at him. What's his problem? No, that's not to be our attitude at all. My attitude should be, how can I help my weaker brother in Christ? Those who are strong ought to do something. This is a command of God Almighty. And real freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Real freedom is the ability to do what you ought to do. And these brothers who are exercising their freedom was, were doing it in a way that was incredibly insensitive. Look at verse 2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now, when we read a verse like that, we're forced to ask another question. Are we we to spend our lives trying to please people? What do you think? Well, the answer is yes and no. There is a wrong way to please people, and there's a right way to please people. Neighbor pleasing, which verse 2 
specifically commands is not the same as men-pleasing, which Scripture condemns. When Paul, for instance, writes the book of Galatians, he's dealing with false teachers, Judaizers who'd come into the church who are adding something to the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And Paul preached a gospel of pure grace that you could only be saved by the cross of Christ and man could do nothing. And because of that, he suffered and he was persecuted. And so he asked a rhetorical question in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, then I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So by asking this rhetorical question, he's saying he's not striving to please men. Now, some people think there's an apparent contradiction between what he said in Galatians and what he said here in Romans. But of course, there are no contradictions in the Bible. The spirit of truth inspired it all. There's no contradictions at all. And to add add fuel to the fire, he said this to the Colossian church, slaves, And all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In addition, he said to the church at Thessalonica, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Obviously, there's no contradictions between these texts in 15 and verse 1. We're not to confuse neighbor-pleasing, which God commands in this verse, with men-pleasing, which God condemns in other Scripture. When you please men, you're compromising yourself. And in a negative sense, it's the opposite of pleasing God. People flatter people in order to get something, in order to gain something from them. It's a selfish, self-centered kind of motive. But what he's speaking here is other-centered. It's not about me. It's about the body of Christ and the health of that local assembly and what we can do to build up that church. So Paul, when he speaks here of pleasing his neighbor, he qualifies it in verse 2, notice, for his good to his edification. Do you see that? We please our neighbor for his good to his edification. In other words, when you come to church, you don't ask the question, what do I want? You ask the question, what do you want? Not what do I need, but what do you need? And if every person in every born-again, Bible-believing local fellowship had that as their attitude, some people would be breaking the door to try to come in. And interestingly, the word please here, it has kind of a double nuance in the original. It means to please through serving someone. And Paul gives us a theological foundation for doing it in verse 3. Notice what he says. Four, here's the reason. Because even Christ did not please himself. Now hold your finger here and turn to the book of Philippians. If you're new to the Bible, right after Romans, you go through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you come to four short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Go everywhere preaching Christ. It's easy to remember. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And go to Philippians chapter 2, because Paul further explains this simple statement made here in Romans that Christ, even Christ, did not please himself. He is our example. Christ of all people 
the second member of the Trinity, is to be our example. And if anyone ever had the right to say, I'm going to do it my way, it was the Lord Jesus. But he didn't. The one who created the universe, the one who left the fellowship of the Holy Trinity, the one who was worshipped by angels, took on the form of a servant. And he became a man, and we read here in verse 8, notice, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. With great humility, he went to the cross and he experienced the horror of having nails driven through his hands and his feet. In addition to that, he experienced shame as he was publicly crucified naked, as they exposed crucified individuals. And as he hung there, he was mocked, he was made fun of. But the worst part of the crucifixion was not the physical torment that he went through. The worst part of the crucifixion is that he was forsaken by God himself. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who knew no sin became sin. He became the receptacle of sin. And that perfect, precious fellowship that he had known from all of eternity past was for the first time broken. Now, the Father did not force this upon the Lord Jesus. The Bible describes Christ's death on the cross as an act of obedience. That presupposes free will. It was the Father's will for Him to become the substitute, but He willed to obey. He had a choice, and He humbled Himself through His arrest, through His trial, through the crucifixion, and through the most climactic part of the crucifixion where He is forsaken by the Father. And so literally this verse reads that Jesus humbled himself. Literally it says even a cross kind of death. A cross kind of death. Now remember the context of this verse. In this chapter in Philippians, he's speaking about unity in the local church. And he prefaces this statement back in verse 3. Notice, he tells us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so Paul is reminding these Christians who want to be self-assertive, who want to disrupt the unity of the church there at the Rome. He's saying, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the Lord Jesus. When he took on humanity, he was not pleasing himself. And then to substantiate that, notice what he quotes, the Old Testament. Where does this come from? Do you see the change of typeset there in your Bible? That tells you it's an Old Testament quote. Where does it come from? Don't look at me. Look down under your Bible. Find it. Where is it from? Anybody? Somewhere, Psalm 69, there it is. It's from Psalm 69. Now, I want to highlight that in your thinking this morning because Psalm 69 is one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament, like Psalm 22. Line upon line upon line upon line upon line of prophecy is described a thousand years ever before it happens when King David writes not of himself, but what the one who would come through his loins, who would come from the house of David, would ultimately do. I have it opened in front of me in Psalm 69 and verse 4. It says that the king would be hated without a cause. It says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Question, 
And he speaks here of his own people. Did they, the Jewish people hate him without a cause? Absolutely. John records he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, the very first time he goes into the synagogue there in the city of Nazareth, and he opens up the prophet Isaiah that is handed to him, and he speaks of his fulfillment of that prophecy. The people are filled with anger and rage, and they bring him to the brow of the hill. Some of you have been to that very spot, and they want to throw him over the cliff. They hated him without a cause. Here in verse 8 of this psalm, it says, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. Was Christ rejected by the biological sons of his mother, as David wrote? Yes, of course he was. Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations after the Lord Jesus was born. And Mark's gospel tells us by name four of his brothers, and then that he had sisters. It's in the plural. So there were at least six children in the home that he was raised in. And the prophet said, David said, that he would be despised by his own family. Now, God doesn't give us the reason for that. I can imagine what it would be like. I mean, think about it. Jesus is growing up in a family of seven children, and he never, ever has to be disciplined, never, ever has to be rebuked, never, ever has to be corrected. Everything he does is perfect. I mean, wouldn't it be tempting to say as a parent, can't you be like Jesus? And for whatever reason, they concluded he's out of his mind. They said in John 7, for not even his brothers were believing him. It happened, just like King David said, a thousand years ahead of time. He also, in verse 10 of this psalm says, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. David prophesied that Messiah would agonize in his soul literally with weeping. And who could doubt that as you read the account in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he faces the cross, and the turmoil of the cross was not the physical aspect of it. Jesus was willing to undergo any kind of persecution. He was willing to practice what he preached. The agony of the cross was the cup becoming, in essence, the object of the Father's wrath, this perfect, unbroken, loving, eternal relationship there for the first time was going to be broken, and he sweat blood when he thought about it. Literally, hydratomosis, where the capillaries under your skin because you're under such pressure, literally begin to burst, and he sweat blood. And the writer of the Hebrews says he did it with loud crying and tears. No one has ever suffered like him. And then it says here in this same psalm in verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. This messianic psalm says that the Lord Jesus would become a byword by his own people. And he is even to this day. I've heard Hindus, I've heard people who are followers of Muhammad, I've heard Buddhists, I've heard so-called Christians, along with Jewish people, use the name of Jesus in vain. Christ suffered remarkably that we might be unified with Him. Likewise, we are to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love Him because He first loved us, and it's from that love we can love one another. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Romans series, download the Search the Scriptures app 
Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Brogy in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. For today's program, request ROM68. When you call or visit online, consider becoming a supporter. Your generous contribution plays a role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the gospel both locally and around the globe. Tomorrow we continue our look at unity in the church. Join us then as we search the scriptures.